You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. All right, go ahead and open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 3 through 8. Um, we're taking a break from our study of the Gospel of Mark until January. Um, and tonight we're going to be taking a look at, again, Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 8. And we'll be considering the topic of humility and service motivated by the incarnation and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and if you're, you've never heard that word incarnation, you might hear me use it a couple of times. Incarnation just means God became a human being, right? God made flesh, Jesus in the flesh, the incarnate Son of God. Uh, so yeah, this is a good Adventy kind of theme for us to look at. Uh, after thinking it over, I, I thought it would be a good idea for us to consider these topics of, of humility and service, uh, but I want to be clear, this sermon is not coming from a place of irritation uh, as a pastor, it's not coming anything like that. Uh, rather, I wanted to lay some biblical truth on these subjects before us all by way of reminder. All right, so again, just to, to clear this up, because sometimes whenever you preach a topical sermon, people feel like you're preaching at them. Uh, I, I just want to lay this out there. This sermon is not calling anyone out or anything like that. Uh, but you know, if you throw a rock into a pack of dogs, the one that yelps, the one that got hit, right? So that's on you uh, completely. Uh, but but I, I honestly think that for the most part, our church is pretty tight-knit uh, and that you guys care for one another. Um, but it, it's so easy um, for us to become complacent with how we serve uh, and or rest our heads on past acts of kindness and service, right? Or look at what other people around us are doing in the church and say, well, our church is doing these things, therefore I need not do anything because I'll ride on their coattails, um, rather than striving to daily continue to imitate the Lord Jesus. So since it's so easy for us to fall into that, I think this is something that we always need reminded of. Right now, I know that some of us are definitely serving uh, and, and seeking to be a blessing to their fellow members. And I know this because I see it uh, and I hear it because I talk to you guys. Um, I, I know that some of us do have some kind of a personal ministry, right? Whether that be praying for others, showing hospitality, uh, just being involved with other people in the church so that you can bless them uh, in some way. I, I know that that stuff happens. Uh, but I also know that not all of our members are participating in some kind of personal ministry, uh, and that should not be so, right? We should earnestly desire to use the gifts that God has given to us to be a help and a blessing to other people. I refer you to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. Write that down if you're a note taker. You should read that and see what I'm talking about. Uh, but but I, what I want us to do is I want us all to take seriously what it means to imitate Jesus in this regard of humble service, I want us all to take seriously the membership covenant of this church, if you're a member here, where we've sworn to God and one another that we would care for each other in this congregation. Uh, I, I want us all to take seriously God's calling on our lives to live as his family and to legitimately care for one another. So that's where this sermon's coming from, right? As your pastor, as your friend, and as your fellow church member, right? Because I might be your pastor, I might have more authority, but I'm a, just a church member like the rest of you. As your pastor, friend, and fellow church member, I want to see us all functioning as the body of Christ should, right? And that is in humble and glad service to one another, honoring the Lord Jesus, who has made the many into one body. 
And Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 8 is a great place for us to be admonished toward these things. Right? It's a text that in the first place, as it's about Christ, makes us stand back in awe of the love and humility of our King. And then secondarily, it's a text that kind of kicks us in the pants and shows us where we're being selfish. Right? It's, it's a great and beautiful passage of Scripture. I read one commentator this week. He said it, it's arguably the highest piece of... Uh, uh, What's the highest piece of literature in the entire New Testament. Uh, it's beautiful. And it's a passage that reminds us of the gospel and of the gospel obedience that flows from our understanding of what Jesus has done for us. It's a text that reminds us of the great duty that we have toward one another in light of what Jesus has done for us. And it, it's a text that reminds us of the servant heart of our Lord and then spurs us on to imitate him because there is nothing more beautiful than him and his example. And it's a text that we're really going to enjoy this evening. And you, you might not enjoy it, but we're going to do it anyway, right? So you may as well just go ahead and commit to it, to learn from this text, right? We're going to learn a lot or at least be reminded of some major truths that we already know. And to that end, I've divided this sermon into four headings this evening. Right? I've been dividing my sermon into headings uh, like a good Reformed person, so it's easy to contain and you guys can follow along uh, and here are the headings first Paul's command examined the second is how we are to obey the command the third is the things we need to know and fourth of course is your application so with that said let's go ahead uh, and, and read our passage this evening Philippians chapter 2 verses 3 through 8 Paul writes do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross this is God's word let's pray living God help us to hear your holy word that we may truly understand that we would really receive it that understanding we may believe and believing we may follow in all faithfulness and obedience, seeking your honor and glory in everything that we do. Grant to us that by your spirit, we would have power to imitate our Savior as we continue to lean on him and trust in him as our right standing with you. We ask for this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. All right, so let's go ahead and, uh, and, and begin with our first heading. Right? Let's go ahead and start at the beginning. Paul's command. That's how our text begins this evening, with a command from the Apostle Paul. He begins verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. This, this passage is really simple. I'm just kind of here to guide you through it, right? Uh, often, a lot of the times, the scriptures are more clear than we want to admit. It's just we don't want to do <laughs> what they're telling us to do. So, but very, very simply, what the Apostle is saying right off the bat is he's telling us that we are not to be selfish or conceited. Those things are not to characterize how we live and think. We're not to be self-consumed, where we're only interested in ourselves. We are not to put ourselves first in every situation, and we're certainly not to put ourselves first at the expense of others. 
We, we are not to be people who are constantly thinking about themselves. Right? Just think about the word selfish. It means to be concentrated on one's own advantage, pleasure, or well-being without regard for others. To be concerned about your own pleasure, well-being, and advantage without regard for anyone else. Don't be selfish or conceited. But that, that word conceit in our text that stuck out to me the most in my study of the negative portion uh, of this command. Conceit. Conceited people are ugly, aren't they? You ever met something? Maybe someone, maybe you thought they were like really pretty or like really handsome. Uh, and, and you're like, yeah, yeah. And then you talk to them for a minute and you realize they're super conceited. And no matter how good looking they were before, they're just an ugly person now. Yeah. So I see some people nodding their heads. You've been on bad dates. Right? That happens. Right? Have you ever been around someone who, who's just absolutely, they're just consumed with themselves. They're, they're every thought is about their life and what's best for them and what they're going to do for themselves, right? Such a person is a misery. They're a nightmare to be around. They're, they're hard to know. They can, they can even be hard to just talk to unless, of course, you want to talk about them, and then they are very easy to talk to, right? But Paul's first word of command to us here is that we are to not be such people. It is a sin for us to be selfish and conceited. Right, and I want to take a quick note here. Uh, this does not mean that we are not allowed to be concerned with our own lives. We are. Read verse 4. He says, do not look only to your own interests. What does that imply? That means that there is a way for you to legitimately look to your own interests. He says, don't only do that, though. So it's okay for you to look, for your, look to your own interests. Right? We can plan ahead. We can try and be responsible. We can do what's best for us and our family, uh, depending on the situation, Right? But I believe that the idea that the apostle is conveying here is of someone being consumed with themselves, like a fire consumes everything that it touches. This is a person being consumed with themselves and what's going on in their own lives. And it's really easy for us to get caught up in our own lives, is it not? Like get caught up in your own problems, get caught up in your own busy schedules. It's easy to just get caught up in yourself and not really give a thought to anyone else. You can get caught up in your own little world trying to build your own little kingdom and become conceited and not even realize you've done it. It is so easy. right? It, it, it's such a part of our culture to be selfish and conceited. And to be, to be frank, it's part of our sinful, fallen human nature. It's such a part of us as sinners to be selfish and conceited that, that we don't even notice it most of the time until the Holy Spirit, through the Word of God, points it out to us. Right? Just, just consider some of these thoughts that we hear all the time, and be honest, we often tend to accept them as good and right and true. You do you, right? Which is, can be understood multiple ways, right? Slang works that way. But you do, do what's good for you always, right? Do what's best for you. You've got to take care of yourself. May God help me. The phrase self-care has driven me insane for the last couple of years. Have you guys seen people constantly... Posting on social media, self-care is not an option. You've got to take care of yourself. And there's usually, in my experience, like the laziest, most selfish people that I know. It's not that they're expending themselves and need to take a day off. These people are usually just lazy. Um, right? you, you hear phrases like, don't let anyone keep you from doing what you want. You've got to look out for number one always because no one's going to look out for you. We hear that stuff day in and day out. And, and I want to be honest, that there may be elements of truth in some of those things. Right? So I'm not, I'm not ditching all of it. We certainly do need to take care of ourselves to some degree. Right? I'm not denying that. People need breaks. 
right? We're human. That's why God has given us one day in seven, the Sabbath, to rest. We, we certainly do need to take care of ourselves. We, we, we do need often to, to make unpopular decisions that are best for our families and for ourselves that people just disagree with us on, and we have to do what's best for ourselves and our families there. But most often, these kinds of phrases and this kind of way of thinking, they're just excuses to be selfish most of the time. But that cannot be our thinking and how we live. Because this is exactly what the apostle is forbidding in these verses. As I said earlier, often we don't even realize that we're being selfish or conceited. Right? So since we don't often realize that, let me give you a quick test so you can evaluate yourself. This hurt me writing it. Right? So don't shoot the messenger. Right? Here's some, I'm going to ask you some questions. I want you to think. When was the last time you earnestly prayed for someone? And when was the last time you earnestly prayed for yourself? Not that it's wrong to pray for yourself, but when was the last time you actually prayed for someone else? When was the last time that you asked someone how that they were doing and didn't use it as an opportunity to talk about how your life is going, but you're actually interested in wanting to know how things are with them? When was the last time you really gave thought to a tough situation or trial that another person is struggling through? And when was the last time you thought about your own trials and what you're going to do? Uh, if you're able, and not all of us are going to be able, but if you're able, when was the last time you blessed somebody with something tangible, like something material, like you gave a gift or you financially blessed somebody? And when was the last time you did something unnecessary for yourself? When was the last time you genuinely asked somebody, maybe not in these words, maybe another phrase for you, how can I serve you? How can I help you? What can I be doing for you? And when was the last time that you wanted someone to do something for you? If, if you can't remember the last time, or you have very few examples of when you have cared for others in some way, then the truth is you are conceited. More likely than not. I'm, I'm, I'm not you, though. I can't peer into your heart. That is the Lord's work, and I'll let the Spirit of God convict as he sees fit. But contrary to that kind of thinking and that kind of living, where you're self-focused, Paul says, don't do that. Right? Instead, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. He says, in humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. Paul's telling us that we must humble ourselves as the people of God. We are not naturally humble, are we? The truth is most sins can be led back to pride. We're not naturally humble people. But to be humble means to be not proud or haughty, not arrogant or self-assertive, but rather deferential to others, right? Showing a spirit of submission and a desire to be of service to other people, not thinking too highly of ourselves, not demanding our own way, not being consumed with ourselves, but rather being concerned for other people and in love, desiring to be of help in some way. Desiring to give of yourself to another person for their good. And why? Because you love them and want to see them increase. Because you want to be a blessing to another person. This is what humility looks like. This is what counting others as more significant than, yourself, than yourselves looks like. Paul says also that we are to look to the interests of others. 
I've stole all this from Matthew Henry. If you ever come across it, it's going to sound real familiar. This means that we should be charitable toward other people, both in our actions and in our hearts. To look to their interest means that we would see the value in others more than we see value in ourselves. I like that. We see value in others more than we see value in ourselves. And what I, what I mean by that is that we would truly treasure other people. We'd treasure people and find them to be very valuable. To really have an attitude that says, I am the least and I am here to serve those around me as God desires. Simply put, we are to be more interested in others than ourselves. We are to be more interested in their concerns, in their problems, in their triumphs, in everything. And we're not to be interested, I like that Henry put it this way, as busybodies or gossips or to be harsh toward them. We're to be interested out of Christian love and sympathy for them. Out of Christian love and sympathy for them, we're to take an interest in them. We, we, we can't be selfish. We must consider not only our reputation and our ease and our growth in the faith and our learning and our sanctification and our earthly needs, but we must be concerned for that of other people. Brothers and sisters, if you haven't guessed yet, this is one of the hardest commandments in sacred scripture. Uh, it can be summed up with, you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. One of the hardest commandments. And this commandment applies broadly. It applies to our relationships with our children. Sometimes we, we don't think about our kids being our neighbors, but they are. This applies to how we treat our children, our spouse, our family, our friends, our co-workers, our fellow church members. This is a blanket statement kind of command is what I call it. Right? It reaches far into every relationship we have, and it leaves nothing untouched. Right? This is a tall order. It's easy to understand what Paul's saying, but it's hard to obey the command. Right? I mean, like, this is the most countercultural, un-American thing you've ever heard. Count others as more significant than yourselves. Are you kidding me? This is the least American thing I've ever heard in my life. It's hard. So this brings us to our second heading, how we are to obey the command. I believe the scriptures constantly lay before us this principle. If actions are to change, then the heart must change first. The Lord Jesus himself said, out of the, out, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. That means that what is in the heart eventually manifests itself in what we do. Wherever the heart is, the hands follow closely behind. So how are we then to get our hearts to line up with Paul's commands so that our actions reflect what Paul commands, or rather God commands us through the apostle? I think Paul answers us in another letter. Romans chapter 12, verse 2, the first part of that verse. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That's what Paul says. So our hearts change as our thinking is changed because knowledge, when rightly applied by God's grace, gives us new desires and changes our hearts. So here, here's the chain. Our minds need changed so our hearts can follow. We have to be informed in our minds so our hearts can change so that our actions will then follow our hearts. Right? So we need to think differently so our affections change so our actions change. This means we need to know something. Our minds are renewed as we learn from God, as His Spirit speaks to us through the Word. 
But again, we need to know something if we're to obey Paul's command to be selfless and serve others gladly. And just real quick, I, I want us to remember that we are, or rather my intention in preaching this to you, may God use it however he wills, but as I, I want us to all be thinking about how we can do these things, how we can obey this command or these commands from Paul in this congregation. The church of Philippi was in mind when Paul wrote this, right? He wanted that church to live this out. So it's in the context of a local body, right? It certainly extends beyond that, as I said earlier, but I want us to think about service within this congregation as we go forward. But our minds need change, so our hearts will change. And that brings us to our third heading, the things we need to know. The Apostle Paul begins to instruct us in verse 5 on what we need to know. We're going to be hanging out here for the rest of the sermon, pretty much. Verse 5, this is what we need to know. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So if we're to obey the commands of verse 3 and 4, Paul says you must have the mind of Christ. You must have the mind of Christ. We must, and what is the mind of Christ? What does that mean? We must have the attitude, the character, the disposition the pattern of thinking of the Lord Jesus Christ if we are to serve and love one another with sincerity. We need to have the mind of Jesus. And in a sense, this mind is already in us to one degree or another. Right? Paul, Paul says it is ours in Christ. And just real quick, this is a tough piece of Greek for translators. Lots of, lots of ink spilled over this. But for our time this evening, we're just going to stick with the English Standard Version's translation, though it is not my preferred. It's, it's still true because we can back it up from other portions of Scripture. So we're just going to go with the ESV. It says, this mind, of Christ, or, this mind is yours in Christ Jesus. What does he mean? Well, if, if we have been united to Christ by faith, if we're Christians, then we already have this mind. It's already yours. It's yours in him. We must now submit, strive to submit more to his mind, right? We already have the principle of his way of thinking in us since we've come to believe in him and what he has done. We already have implanted in our hearts the truth of Christ's humility and his service since it is the very person and work of Christ that we believe has saved us. We already have that principle of thinking in us because that is what we believe. Now it is time for us to live out that new mind. Right? We already have it. Now it's time to grow in it. The Apostle Paul, has, oh, he tends to do this a lot. He says, here's what you are, now be it. Or here's what you have in Christ, now do that. Here's who you are, now be who you are. Matthew Henry put it this way, if we have the benefit of his death, we must bear a resemblance to his life. That's good. But what is the mind of Christ that Paul speaks of here? What, what mind do we need to have in us? Let, let's read 6 through 8, and then we're going to walk through it line by line. Here's the mind of Christ. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That is the mind of Christ. That is the disposition and attitude of the Son of God. So let's take some time and consider the great humility and service of the Lord Jesus, beginning first with the time before his incarnation, before he took on human flesh and came to earth. 
though he was in the form of God. Let's stop. Now, this does not mean that Jesus only appeared to be God. Right? Though he was in the form of God does not mean that. The Bible is very clear. Jesus is God. He's the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. But this is speaking of the pre-incarnate Christ. That he was in the form of God is a reference to Christ, in the words of Calvin, dwelling in the majesty of the divine nature. He's in the form of God. To be in the form of God is to be God. For God has no equal. He's in a category all of his own. So to say that someone can be in the form of God and not be God is blasphemy because it denies the holiness and uniqueness, if that's a word, of God. To be in his form is to be him because there is none like him. As we confess in the Nicene Creed and sing in some good Christmas hymns, Jesus is light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not made, of one substance with the Father. He is God. The Lord Jesus Christ dwelled in perfection in heaven, enjoying all of his divine rights and privileges as God. This is the pre-incarnate Son of God. Just try and picture it. He dwelled in glory. He is robed in light in which no man can approach, seated on his throne with seraphim flying about him day and night, singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The earth is filled with his glory. He's ruling and reigning and being worshipped in the splendor of his holiness. He is in the form of God, enjoying all of his rights, as John tells us in John 1, in the bosom of the Father, face to face with the Father. We cannot begin to comprehend, fully comprehend the glory that Christ had from the beginning. It's beyond our words. It's beyond our understanding. As, a, as finite creatures, it's beyond our reach Surely understand he's in the form of God and all that that means. But the one who dwelled in glory alongside the Father and the Holy Spirit, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't view his status as God, a thing to be used for his own advantage. He didn't view his equality with the Father as something to be held on to for himself, tenaciously grasped. Rather, knowing that only God can satisfy God, knowing that only God can satisfy the wrath and justice of God, knowing that only God can save sinners, the Lord Jesus considered his divine nature as qualifying himself to come and serve and save his people. This is absolutely astounding. Even prior to the incarnation, the Son of God is humble. And that does not deny his co-equality with the Father and the Spirit. But the Son of God is humble, even in his pre-incarnate state. Most humble. Hear me on this. We'll come back to this on bunch. There is no God like this but our God. What God have you ever heard of, aside from this one, that displays humility? Only our God. As Paul commands us, we see here by example that the Lord Jesus counted others as more significant than himself. He's not conceited or selfish. He is the humble one, counting even his very nature as not something to be used for himself. 
So humble is he that he is absolutely willing to submit himself to the will of the Father for our sakes and God's glory. He did not count his equality with God as a thing to be held on to. Instead of holding on to his rights as God, instead of grasping them tightly and remaining in glory, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now, now before we go on, I, I have to be clear. This is not, if you've ever heard of it, if you haven't, you've been warned now. This is not a heresy called the kenosis theory, right? Uh, it's, it's a heresy that became popular in the 20th century that is just laughable. It claims that Jesus, in this passage, when it says he emptied himself, this heresy claims that Jesus emptied himself of the divine nature. That's dumb, right? Just throwing that out there. That's just silly. Jesus never ceased to be God. Jesus did not strip himself of his divine attributes. He retained the very nature of God. Okay, hear me out. God cannot cease to be God because God cannot be but what he is. Right? He is. He is unchanging. His nature, his nature cannot change. His nature cannot be emptied. It's foolishness to say that the Son of God emptied himself of his divinity. He must have not existed anymore then because he is God. He's in the form of God. He has the divine nature in and of himself. He can never cease being God. But what Paul means here is something like he made himself nothing. Could be a good translation. He made himself nothing. It's a metaphor. Keep in mind, I didn't tell you this earlier, verses 6 through 11 of, Ephesians two, or of uh, Philippians 2 are poetic in their structure. Uh, some scholars argue that this may have been an ancient hymn, right? That either Paul took and used for his own purposes in the letter to the Philippians, or a hymn that Paul wrote himself that then became something that the church sung. Right? This is poetic in structure, so it would make sense. He made himself nothing, and he emptied himself How? By taking a human body to himself. He emptied himself in the incarnation. Right? This is strange for us. He emptied by taking. I uh, heard a theologian, this, is, this isn't a great, uh, this isn't a perfect analogy. He says, it's subtraction by addition. He emptied himself by becoming truly human. As we confessed earlier, true, or two natures in one person. Truly God, he became truly man. The natures, I want to be clear, not mixed together to create a third nature. Each nature retaining its own attributes unique to them, but the two natures united together in the one God-man. But how is this an emptying? How is this an emptying? Well, you can legitimately call this an emptying, a making himself nothing, because of the gap between God and man. We need to hear this because we think too highly of ourselves. This is called an emptying because of the gap between God and mankind. So high and holy is God that it is a true emptying of himself to take a human nature to himself. Let me illustrate this for you. Imagine if you became an ant, but you were still really you. Right? Think of how humble you would have to be. And you're doing this to save ants, I might add. For some reason, you want to save ants. Um, think about how humble you would have to be to do that as a human being to willingly take on the nature of an ant. Body and a rational soul of an ant if they had such a thing. Think of the emptying of yourself. 
that it would take for you to become an ant. Brothers and sisters, that does not even begin to scratch the surface. The distance between human beings and ants is laughable compared to the distance between God and mankind. Mild he lays his glory by. As the hymn says, when he became a human being, he emptied himself. And he took on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He truly became a servant, the form of a servant. Right? Just like the form of God, he truly became a servant. He truly became a servant. He didn't just appear to be a servant. He actually served. He was actually treated like a servant. It's a quick aside. I heard a pastor say once, everyone, wants to, everyone says they want to be a servant until someone treats them like one. <laughs> Jesus was actually treated like a servant. And he willfully and gladly served others. Jesus is the prophesied servant of the Lord from Isaiah. The one who came to do the will of the Father and redeem the people of God as the Messiah, as the Christ. And he did it through service. Consider his whole life, right? Just a brief overview. It was one of continual service. First, as we've already covered, in his willingness to take on human flesh, right? What condescension. And I mean that in the best way. Whenever we say another human being is condescending, it's because they think that they're so high and they have to come down low to talk to us. But when we talk about Jesus, it was actually condescension. So high was he that he stepped so low to come to us. That is service. But then we, in his life, we see nothing but selfless service. We see a constant counting of others as more important than himself. Constantly looking to the interest of others. His life was one of teaching. He proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of salvation to sinners. How is that service? He had no need for the gospel himself, but sinners did. So he preached to them. That's selfless. Jesus has no worry of suffering the eternal wrath of God. He's perfect. But he preached the gospel to sinners that they might be saved. And he rebuked. When people needed correcting and called to repentance, he served them that way. It's a hard job to rebuke somebody. You have to lay yourself down to rebuke someone in a gentle and godly way. And Jesus did it anyway, often, knowing he would be hated for it. He gave to the poor. Though Judas stole money, the scriptures tell us there was a money bag kept. And various passages of scripture imply and speak to Jesus' care for the needs of those less fortunate, even though he himself was poor and had nowhere to lay his head. We see his service in his miracles, that he healed the desperate and the sick, that he fed the hungry, that he raised the dead. I'm sure he dried many a teary eye and gave hope to the downcast as he lifted their heads to behold the Son of God. Everything he did in his earthly ministry was not for himself but for the sake of those around him and looking to the future for our sakes. He constantly attended those, let me say this, he constantly attended those who could do nothing for him in return. And he served them gladly in accordance with the will and plan of his father. But that's not all. That's not even close to the most mind-blowing act of our humble God, verse 8, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We see first here that he humbled himself. Now we've heard 
examples thus far of his great humility. But here is the great truth. He humbled himself. No one humbled him as so often external forces come upon us and we're driven to our knees and we're forced to be humble. Rather, he did it himself. No one could bring him low. He's God. Rather, he willingly submitted himself to service. He willingly did everything that he did. No one forced him because no one could force him. Imagine, he he gave consent for every single hardship that he endured. He gave consent for every ounce of pain that he suffered. And he gave his consent for every ounce of service that he would have to perform. That is humility. We do these things often because they come upon us and we just have to suffer or we just have to do something. Jesus had to give his holy consent for each of them. And he did all of this out of his own goodwill toward us. Why? Because he counted others as more significant than himself. Of his own will, and in harmony with the will of the Father, he condescended. All of it was his own doing. And he became fully obedient. Fully obedient to the will of the Father. Even so much that he would die. Even that he would die on a cross. A shameful thing. We've romanticized it too much. Crucifixion is a shameful thing. A shameful death. Humiliated, beaten, stripped naked, mocked, abused, hated, spit in his face, ripped his beard out, counted as less than nothing, counted as a worm and not a man, much less the Son of God. So intense was his love and goodwill toward us that he was willing to endure death, even the shameful death of crucifixion. And more than that, we know that on that cross... Christ was offered up as the propitiation for our sins. Meaning he was punished by God in our place for the wrongs that we've committed. So that by his blood, those who come to him in faith would be washed clean and presented to God without spot or blemish. Christ was smitten, stricken, and afflicted on our behalf so that we might go free. And be saved from the wrath of God that we deserve for our sins. So great was his love. So much did he consider our well-being that he interposed himself between us and the wrath that we so justly deserve. So much did he count others as more significant than himself that he did not even care to lay down his own life on our behalf. This, brothers and sisters, is our humble, serving, loving Lord. Behold your God. I tell you this often. Behold your God. Jesus had every right to stay in heaven and leave us to perish in our sins, but he did not. In love, he humbled himself and came to earth for our sakes. So humble is Jesus that there is nothing he was not willing to do. He took on flesh, emptied himself, served all his life, gave his life as a ransom for many. There is nothing he wasn't willing to do. And who did he do it for? Sinners. He did it for us. This is amazing. And I mean that as literally as I can. This is something that causes astonishment and shocks us to our very core. What God counts others as more important than himself? What God does that? 
You will not find this in the false religions of the world. You won't find it anywhere else. What God is like this. This is insanity. Right? If we were gods, we wouldn't do what Jesus did. We wouldn't serve anyone. We're too selfish for that. Rather, we would demand to be served by everyone. But here is the Son of God, the incarnate God, who is the servant of His people. And it's not because you're worthy. Please, God help you if you think you are worthy of the mercy of God. Because if that's the case, you're not a Christian. It's not because you're worthy. All we're worthy of is eternal hell, but it's because of His great love and mercy that He did these things. Now, in light of these things, we have to ask ourselves, if Jesus did all of that, if Jesus had that attitude, if the eternal Son of God counted Himself as a servant for our sakes, then how much more should I be willing to adopt this mindset? Because I'm actually nothing. You're nobody. I don't know if anyone told you that. The vast majority of us in here are going to die We're all going to die. But then in a generation or so, no one's going to remember you. Maybe some of your family members, but no one. No one outside of your family. In five generations from now, probably nobody. You're no one, and neither am I. Jesus is the Son of God, and He did this. How then could we not do the same? There are none among us too high to serve. There are none among us too low that we would not serve them. I'll say this one. No one is so busy that they cannot make time for others. No one is so great that they would only think of themselves. God Almighty did this for us. So have this mind among you that was in Christ Jesus. We need to ask ourselves, who am I? In light of the mercy of Christ shown to me, in light of what he has done to serve me, who am I to see someone hungry and not feed them? Who am I to see someone in need of encouragement and not encourage them? To see someone in need of a friend and not befriend them? To see someone in need of godly rebuke and not give it? Who am I to see someone in need of prayer and not pray for them? To see a brother or sister in Christ and not love them as Christ has loved me? We must love each and every one of us. We must serve one another. We must be like the one who was above all and yet emptied himself and became a servant to all. We must have the mind of Christ, which is yours already, if you've been united to him. We must submit to this mind that the Spirit of God has already implanted in our hearts. And now we come to application. And I'll be brief because we've already went over the application In the first heading, I want to read verses 3 and 4 to you again. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Take up his holy mind and imitate him. Follow after him. First he is your salvation, then he is your example. Or rather, he never stops being your salvation. He's your salvation and your example. But for practical purposes, I want to do something I don't believe I've ever done before. Um, We're going to have five minutes of silence after I close this sermon. 
And in that time, I'd like each of you to, to write down three things that you can do to put this text into practice this week. And that might sound like some kindergarten nonsense that you don't want to do. I get it. I, I, I didn't want to write this out, to be honest. But I want us to do this now because I know what happens so often when we hear sermons like this because I've done it. We think, I'm going to start being more involved with people. Right? I'm going to do something. And by the time the benediction is read, you forget. And that's evil. Again, I'm confessing my own sin here. It's sinful for us to not meditate on the word preached. It's sinful for us to not apply what we hear. As James says, be doers of the word and not hearers only. But I want you to write down three things, whether it be you text it to yourself, email it to yourself, write it in the notes app on your phone, write it on the handouts that you you received as you came in, whatever it is. Write down three things that you can put into practice this week. Maybe even starting this evening to put this command into practice. Some examples. Ask someone out for coffee or a meal. Or better yet, ask someone to come into your home. Oh, God, help us to be hospitable people. Invite someone into your home, and your home doesn't have to look awesome, right? If you feel like you've got to clean up everything, that's not genuine hospitality. You're putting on a show, right? Invite someone into your home. Text your fellow members asking them how you might pray for them on an individual basis. Pray, commit to praying through the member list and letting people know you're praying for them. Invite someone new into your home that you don't know. Begin a friendship with someone that you don't really know well yet. Listen, this is not a call for all of you to enter some kind of formal ministry. right? For some of you it may be. I don't, I don't know. Right? That's up to the Lord. But for most of us, just hear me please, if this sounds overwhelming, for most of us, this is a call to regular, everyday, commonplace, seemingly small acts of humble service in this church that will actually make a difference. I'm serious. Small things, seemingly small things that will actually matter. But brothers and sisters, we all must begin to do something. All of us have gifts that the Lord has given to us for the benefit of the body of Christ. Read 1 Corinthians 12, I believe it's verse 7. We can all do something, whether it be big or small, behind the scenes or before the congregation, we can all be servants. So just don't overthink it. Don't ever think it. What, what can you do? What are you good at? You can encourage somebody. You can text someone in the church once a week and encourage them in the word. You can do something. But we must adopt the mind of Christ if we are going to be the people in church that Christ died for us to become. So have this mind among you that is yours in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this portion of scripture to remind us of the great love of the Lord Jesus Christ, his great humility and his incarnation and his service and his living and his suffering and his dying for sinners in our place. Help us to imitate him. Far be it from us, Lord, to take what he's done for us and rejoice in the fact that our God is a God who serves and who is humble, but, I, but then also say in our hearts, I will not be like him. God, help us. Help us to imitate your son. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.